welcome to the Rise for Equity podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Fnoyamhara. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Nusheen Aminuddin, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, about the impact of cold and flu season on marginalized communities and how COVID-19 has changed how we care for ourselves and our communities. Welcome, Dr. Aminuddin. I wanna start by asking about your personal story. Why did you go into medicine and how have you centered advocacy in your work? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Nicole. It's lovely to be working with you again. Thrilled to see you. I am a pediatrician with a large community population. The reason that I went into medicine was because it was actually a fairly personal story. I loved the idea of being able to connect with people and, you know, my own background as someone who grew up in an immigrant family, even though my father and mother were educated and came over from India, basically when you come as an immigrant, oftentimes you have to start from scratch and after my father had finished his PhD program and was out in the job world, it became clear at that time that insurance was not something that was, was affordable for the rest of the family. So I was just very lucky. I did not have health insurance for a very long time, really actually until from the time my father graduated until the time I started medical school. And I was just really lucky that I didn't get sick. But I remember when things would happen, it was something that we would have to pay out of pocket. And so it always struck me as an injustice, even though I didn't have the words for it when I was young, that people couldn't just access care and that would be and that it would be so terribly expensive. And so, you know, as a pediatrician now, obviously in the last 20 plus years, we've had the child health insurance program. We've had Medicaid expansion that has covered so many more kids and, and even adults. And one of the things I'm really grateful for in the state of Minnesota is we've had some record high levels of coverage for kids, even though coverage doesn't automatically equal access. If you don't have coverage, you're not going to be able to access the care that you need whether it's basic medical care, preventive medical care, or care for colds, flus, and the more serious sequelae that can sometimes come with that. Thanks for sharing that. So before we dive into community education and impact, I'd love to start with some definitions. Can you explain how cold and flu are categorized as illnesses and how they're different from COVID? Sure. So, you know, having a cold or an upper respiratory infection is kind of a broad way to categorize a number of different viruses that commonly circulate at different times throughout the year. Some are more prominent during certain times of the year. You know, before COVID, we used to think of this as cold and flu season because we would see an increase in upper respiratory infections caused by viruses and influenza or flu, which is also caused by a virus, but is a little bit different from other things. And COVID, of course, is also a virus. We have learned that viruses can evolve, viruses can mutate, and that can really have an impact on how severe they are, how deadly potentially they are. You know, coronaviruses were circulating well before we heard about the COVID-19 pandemic, but just were not mutated or evolved to the point that they were causing as severe conditions as they have over the last few years. So viruses are all around us. Bacteria are also around us. And bacteria can oftentimes be treated with antibiotics, but viruses cannot. You know, it's interesting. I think about this as a pediatrician on a regular basis. And I was reading recently that about 40% of parents, when they bring their child to the pediatrician's office, are expecting antibiotics. They're expecting something that will make their sick child well 
And Nicole, you're a parent, you know exactly how frustrating, how heartbreaking, how difficult it can be to take care of a sick child. And sometimes the hardest thing that my colleagues and I have to do is say, it's quote unquote, just a virus, and it's going to have to run its course. There's unfortunately no medicine. There's no antibiotic that is going to be able to treat a virus. The majority of the illnesses we see are caused by viruses. So on the one hand, it's maybe reassuring that they don't need medicine but it also means they're going to be sick and there's nothing we can do, unfortunately, beyond saying, watch for this, watch for this. If this happens, come see us again. Yeah, I know. It's super frustrating when kids are sick and there isn't medicine to fix them. I think the best case is it runs its course and they get better. And kids are very resilient for the most part in terms of being able to rebound from illnesses, but it's still so hard to see them sick and not be able to fix it. I want to talk a little bit more about COVID-19. Can you tell us how COVID has impacted our immunity to cold and flu? We know these viruses are floating out there and causing multiple overlapping infections. So how do these illnesses interact and how are kids specifically impacted by that? I would say if there's a good thing that's come out of this whole pandemic, it's that we are studying the effects of the impact of viruses more than we used to. Because again, we used to sort of pass it off as it's just a cold. There are plenty of coronaviruses that circulated that were just a cold. But as we learn more and more about COVID-19 specifically and its variations, we are learning that it actually has a pretty significant impact negatively on immunity. You know, very early on in the pandemic, as we were all learning things, we were just trying to stay on top of things. It seemed that COVID was not affecting kids too badly, but we are learning now long term, probably 15 or more percent of kids, even if they have a very mild case or sometimes an asymptomatic case, that that actually is affecting other aspects of, of their health care. We have found that there has been a hit to the immune system in a couple different ways. In some cases, we found that it's erasing memory of immunity to other viruses and other things, which is which is fairly serious. We're finding longer term fatigue. We're finding crazy, you know, neurological findings in kids that don't really have an answer. We're finding also we've had big increases in POTS, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. The long and short of that is it's a medical condition where kids and teenagers may otherwise seem healthy, but they get very fatigued, you know, even standing up, they can get dizzy. It's really a debilitating condition. And we're fortunate that at Mayo Clinic, we have a special POTS clinic because we've seen a big increase in POTS diagnoses in kids. We're also learning that really, you know, the kids oftentimes the ones who have the underlying asthma, which is disproportionately affecting populations from the Black community, Latino, Native American, American Indian communities in, in a really difficult way. We are also finding that, you know, a year, two years ago, as we were looking at how COVID had impacted families in ways that are not strictly related to immunologic or hospitalizations or, or mortality is that kids who were from communities that were not white were much more likely to have lost a caregiver. So that is a parent, a grandparent who died of COVID and being an orphan or partially orphaned is not a small thing for a kid. You know, we've seen rising rates of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, but, but losing a parent or a caregiver is a huge, huge thing. That's, that's something I think that we haven't paid enough attention to. We do know that 
widely disproportionately as much as COVID has affected every group, it's groups that have traditionally been under-resourced or are currently under-resourced who may not have access to the vaccines as easily or other care who have really had the burden. And just in the last week or so, I looked at some data about masking and it pointed out that people from the Black and Latino community were more likely to keep masking. And I think it's because the impact has been so profound in the communities, unfortunately. I'm so glad you brought that up. I remember there were stories that really struck me during the darkest parts of the COVID pandemic, like the fact that Native, Black, and Latino communities were losing whole elder generations. These are people who are culture bearers and teachers and people who carry the traditions. And a lot of the time, those are people who are also primary caregivers for youth and young adults in those communities. And now they're completely decimated. Those losses have lifelong and community-wide impacts. And then you look at things like the mental health impact of that kind of pain and the lack of access to good care. It all comes together and it makes it so hard for communities to move forward. And it seems like those social and cultural impacts will continue. So I'm thinking a lot right now about how we get information to our communities, because if access is an issue, that probably includes lacking access to accurate and easy to understand health education. As a pediatrician, I'm sure you're caring for your fair share of patients with cold and flu symptoms in addition to COVID. With your pediatrician hat on, how do we get information about prevention and treatment of viruses like this to marginalized communities who may not have as much access to education or medical care? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. As someone also who has a, a public health background, education on a large scale level is so important to me. So how do we get that information to communities? I think we have seen successes and failures, especially over the last few years with messaging to communities about COVID and what we've learned over many years. And as a pediatrician, this is nothing new for me. You know, we've been dealing with vaccine hesitance, even flat out anti-vaccine campaigns. We know that people like to get information from trusted sources. And oftentimes trusted sources for, for parents, for families are people who they know, are people in their own communities. As much as we'd love to say, you know, we want patients to come in to the clinic and we hope we're doing a good job of educating them. Not every family can make it in sometimes past the threshold of the clinic door. And so what do we need to do on a large scale in communities? And I think a lot of what we've learned is letting families know, well, here's what to watch for if things get bad, but also let's talk about prevention. And in public health, I remember learning this, you know, 20 some years ago <laughs> when I first did my degree that when public health works, nothing happens. And it's hard to get people excited about nothing. It's only unfortunately when really terrible things happen that we realize how important the public health infrastructure is. And so really going back to your question about how do we educate, what we have learned is that, you know, pediatricians in particular have said, okay, do we need to get onto social media? Do we need to like reach parents where they are? So we've tried to say, how can we harness these great communication tools we have to serve as people who are providing accurate information, vetted information that can then, we hope, go viral among communities to encourage Unintended. them to get vaccines. Yes, yes, exactly. Unintended. <laughs> A perfect pun. <laughs> Going viral. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about that education piece so much because it's so layered and it has to go through so many different platforms like social media, printed ads, shared in a variety of languages. There's a huge need to get that information out in as many ways as we can. So obviously during the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the pieces of information we heard a lot about was the 1918 flu pandemic. And because the flu is such a common part of our lives now, we often forget that 500 million people died in the 1918 pandemic globally. 
It's almost a third of the human population, and a lot of historians acknowledge that vaccinations were a huge reason we got out of that pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about how vaccinations have changed since the last major global pandemic and how we can look at equity and access to vaccination at this point? As a pediatrician, vaccination is an issue that's very close to my heart. It's something that we literally have decades of evidence for. We saw a curtailing of of deaths in children when the smallpox vaccine was introduced, when, you know, the flu was introduced. And it's interesting because, like, you know, even today, we with this very sophisticated medical care living in Rochester, not just a tertiary, but probably a quaternary healthcare facility, we think, oh, you know, it's probably not that bad. And I have lots of people tell me, oh, it's just the flu. But what we don't realize is that the flu still kills so many people and it's a big killer of children unfortunately across the world we are very fortunate to have vaccination as one of our tools to decrease both mortality deaths from flu but also decrease the severity of flu in other people who might otherwise be more vulnerable when we talk about this from an equity standpoint and vaccine access unfortunately the flu vaccine for many people is not free ideally if you have some type of insurance whether it's medicaid medical assistance or private insurance you should be able to access it but that can be a challenge. There are oftentimes free flu clinics, but you have to have transportation. You have to have to, you have to know where they are. You have to make sure they don't run out of resources. I remember getting my first flu shot when I was in high school. That was when they were first starting to introduce them. And then I remember in subsequent years, they would just run out because so many people wanted them. And I've seen the whole vaccination issue shift. People, you know, there's a common myth out there that the flu vaccine gives you the flu, and that's not the case. It is normal. And even though it's unpleasant in terms of any Sometimes your body will appropriately mount an immune response, which can mean that you have a fever, which is no fun. It can mean that you feel a little yucky, a little bit achy, but that's not the same as getting the flu. That's not the same as as actually being sick with something. So again, from an equity perspective, we know that in the United States, only about one in two people gets their flu shot. And we have to ask why, you know, is that barriers or is it personal beliefs? Is it the spread of misinformation and disinformation? You know, are those myths that we can help correct with information or is it a deeper issue related to trust? And when we look specifically at Black, Latino and Native American populations, only about 43% of those populations are getting the flu shot. And we do know we have very strong evidence in pediatrics that, you know, it's those kids with asthma and kids with other underlying conditions, but even kids who otherwise seem perfectly healthy. Healthy, we can seriously reduce the risk of hospitalization and death, which again is something we deal with as pediatricians. It's sometimes really connecting with people one-on-one. And it's your responsibility to continue to be persistent and continue to champion the case for prevention and care. And you know, as I was listening to you, I was putting my anthropologist hat on because so much of this has a cultural weight to it in terms of how people are getting their information, what information they're getting, and who they trust in terms of their community's history with healthcare institutions and providers. I think that's particularly relevant for the communities that we've just spoken about, including Black communities, Native and Latino communities in this country. And on top of that, we can think about global communities and how immigrant communities have been treated when it comes to vaccinations and global health research. So as providers and educators, you're having to navigate all of that history in order for people to get the best care. When I'm thinking about access, I think about my own experiences with it, of course. You know, my daughter's in kindergarten, and for the first time ever, they had a flu shot clinic at her school. And even though I have personally got the privilege and the access to get her a flu shot outside of school, it was so easy to access that kind of life-saving care. She showed up at school that day and she just got her flu shot. I don't have to think about things like taking time off of work, transportation, taking her out of school or anything like that. 
It's so important to have that kind of community and public health care available. Even at my church the other day, there was a flu shot clinic for the elderly people in the community to get their shot. I think when we talk about access to vaccination as a whole, we can look at what we learned from the COVID pandemic and see the roots of bad health outcomes that run so deep, especially in marginalized communities. So before we started recording, we were looking at a report released by the CDC in 2023 about flu vaccination rates for different racial and ethnic groups. That report highlighted some serious gaps in terms of health equity related to both vaccination rates and overall health outcomes for marginalized communities. Can you share a little bit about how those gaps show up in your clinical setting? So again, unfortunately, it's not new. It's not news that that there are these inequities and we see them at pretty much every level that are disproportionately impacting Black, Latino, and Native American communities. When we think about just cold viruses, and as much as we call them just a cold, viruses can actually pre be pretty nasty. And it doesn't have to be COVID. It doesn't have to be influenza. But even a quote unquote simple cold that causes an asthma exacerbation in a child who has asthma that makes them have to go to the emergency department for urgent treatment or get, get them hospitalized is something that we see a lot more in, in Black, Latino, and Native American communities. So looking at the disparities of influenza, it, it's not surprising at all for those of us who've kind of been watching the trends. It's disheartening. It's always disheartening. But we look at that and we think, okay, is there, you know, some sort of an intersection between being able to access appropriate preventive care? You know, if you don't have insurance, you probably can't afford the steroid inhaler that, that your child is on. And unfortunately, you know, we've had just in recent months, people lose Medicaid status just because of filing errors, because of clerical errors. During the COVID pandemic, there had been extensions of Medicaid where you don't necessarily have to like go in, you know, every single year to, to recheck, but people have fallen off that. And so if you find yourself with a gap in coverage, that can severely impact your ability to keep your child well. And so I think that's one of the reasons where, you know, even before this was all, you know, pandemic related, if you have gaps in coverage, if you move, if there's paperwork that Maybe English is not your first language. Maybe health literacy or other literacy issues can impact your ability to fill out forms that are that are not easy to fill out that can actually have a huge impact down the line for health and well-being. Again, being close to a place where you can access care for your child, that's an issue for people who live in rural areas. Also an issue for people who live in urban areas. Even if you're surrounded by something, do you have the transportation to be able to get there? There is understandably some hesitation sometimes in terms of trust. But again, if you can't access the care to begin with, how do you even get to the point where you can access that? So that plus, you know, environmental factors that increase the risk of asthma, which again, underlying condition, which can make a simple cold not so simple for a child or, or someone else can significantly impact the way your body responds. Thanks for giving some great examples there of the different barriers to access. I think sometimes when we're discussing health equity, we hear that certain populations are quote unquote vulnerable or at risk for certain illnesses or severe outcomes. And then we hear the language and we think, okay, am I more at risk because I'm a black woman, for example? But is it that I'm more at risk just by virtue of my race? Or is the real question, what is making certain groups vulnerable and at risk? What are the root systemic causes of those gaps? I wanna stay with that a little and talk about the upstream causes of the gaps that we're seeing. I'm particularly curious about care for communities of color, but we also know that there are other intersections there like class, gender, et cetera. 
So that is a really critical question, Nicole. And I think especially in the last few years, we've really been reckoning with this in medicine, looking at the questions we haven't asked, looking at the wider view. And so you mentioned, you know, there are these intersections of race, ethnicity, class, socioeconomic status, education, and are you at greater risk as, as a Black woman than someone else? And the truth of the matter is genetically, we're all very similar. And so when you're talking about that, I was thinking about how it's not an issue of race, it's an issue of racism. And I'm going to pause for a second because I know people hear that word. And even though this is a podcast on equity and hopefully we're comfortable using accurate words like that to describe, it can still make people really uncomfortable, especially in the medical field, because, you know, we're taught, no, 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 we're not seeing race for ever so long. And still we try to think that we are objective and that we're very science-based. We're looking solely at the evidence and the truth of the matter is we're not as objective as we think. And that's a really hard thing to admit. That's a really, really difficult thing to admit, you know, particularly when you're a person in what's considered a caring profession, in, in a profession where you're like, nope, I just look at data. You know, you asked the question, about are you at greater risk? And really the sad truth is the way society is now, even though you have access to medical care, you know, you're an employee of the Mayo Clinic, you're at higher risk. And we are challenging ourselves to really dive deeper. Is it that we as physicians, clinicians are not listening as well? Our implicit and explicit biases coming out in ways that we don't necessarily want them to, but are they coming out? And so it really is a racism issue rather than a race issue, because genetically it's really not, uh, it shouldn't be a problem. And I keep going back to the Serena Williams example, one of the top athletes. I mean, if there's anyone who's in tip top shape, if there's anyone who has the resources, who has the command of an audience, the influence, you know, she had an almost fatal outcome when she was giving birth to her child. And, you know, when we actually step back, you know, people can be like, oh, that's a one-off. And when we actually looked at the data, it, it's not a one-off. The rates for maternal mortality are much higher for Black women that transcend education, socioeconomic status, access to insurance. And it shouldn't be. That goes against everything, you know, we kind of learn in public health. But the fact is we're not asking the right questions and we need to look deeper to ensure that we are providing the best possible care, the most objective care, the most patient-centered care, particularly when we see that we're falling short. And the numbers don't lie. I think there are a lot of people who are still scratching their heads. It's it's very difficult. It's hard for us to acknowledge that. I do want to give a shout out to one of my colleagues, Dr. Tiffany Johnson, pediatric emergency medicine physician, who has really delved into the issue of our Black children treated in a differential way. And so being an emergency department physician, she's published um, along with her colleagues some important things that are, are really hard to stomach. She found that when Black and African-American children came into the emergency department, they were not given as much pain medication as non-Black children. And again, that's hard. You know, as pediatricians, we come into the room, we, we, we coo over all the kids. We think everyone's so cute. And the fact that we're not addressing the pain needs of kids through implicit, explicit bias through other, you know, for other reasons, it's a difficult thing. We have to acknowledge that that's the truth and that we need to address it. She also did a study, which was, which was very interesting. And so like, as we were kind of talking about disparities and cold and flu treatment and all those things, as I mentioned earlier, we don't treat viruses with antibiotics. Antibiotics are not going to have an effect on viruses, even if parents come in with kind of the expectation that my kid is sick, I want antibiotics. What she learned is that kids, again, from black families, were not given antibiotics for viral infections. And on the one hand, you're like, but that's the right thing to do. That's what should be happening. That's not appropriate. There can be side effects to these antibiotics that are not going to help kids anyway. 
but you also have to step back and say, so what's happening? <laughs> what's happening here? Are our parents not being listened to? Do they not feel empowered to, you might call it, advocate for their children in a system where traditionally there have been some very serious things that we're, we're still reckoning with? So why is that happening? Why does that disparity exist? It's not that racism is protective. That's I, some people have. And I say that because some people have drawn that conclusion and we're like, no, 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 no. We need to look a little bit deeper and definitely much more widely before making that kind of, you know, an incorrect conclusion. But what it tells me, you know, Dr. Johnson's work, especially in these two areas, is that Black families are not getting the same level of care as other families. And that is a problem. That is a problem that we really need to address. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I know it's really hard having to face the very difficult realities of that knowledge as a provider and a patient. I remember hearing the story about Serena Williams almost dying in childbirth and a lot of the other data around Black families visiting the emergency room. It's so hard from that angle because, of course, it exacerbates trust in the medical system. But also, as I was listening to you, I was also thinking about how hearing those stories can also spark us to take action ourselves as patients. I was having my second child around the same time that Serena Williams shared the birth story of her first child. And I remember going to my provider and saying, I have concerns about this. And it gave us an opening to have a serious conversation about my risk and outcomes. When we learn about the systemic racism in medicine, we can also work on changing that. I'm sure you know as a provider how important that patient-provider relationship is. And that relationship extends through the family and into the community in a lot of ways. What resources can patients use to advocate for themselves or their loved ones? What questions should they be bringing to their providers? How can providers and patients work together to be educated on community-specific issues and how they can achieve the best outcomes for care? So I think seeking out information is always important. That's something I encourage. I always add the caveat, though, that not everything that comes up on Google is vetted. And I think there have been a number of social media platforms that have tried to at least direct people towards more accurate information, like the CDC website or the National Institutes of Health. I would say patients who have questions, you can go to the mayoclinic.org site. There's lots of information on different conditions there. As a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, I also strongly encourage healthychildren.org, which is all vetted by pediatricians to make sure they can get accurate information. It's hard in this sea of misinformation. Sometimes, you know, it's the one YouTube video that will leave an impression on you that might not be the most accurate. But I would also say, you know, when you come to your appointment, don't be afraid to ask questions. I mean, that's the whole reason that you're there. You know, we're here to work together to try to find out what's going on and to try to provide the best care to your child. You know, and again, for patients and physicians alike, sometimes it can be like, well, you know, I'm used to my mom giving me ginger ale when I was throwing up. And I was like, well, that's maybe not the best thing. It's it's not the worst thing, but but not the best thing. But, but you know, also being willing to sort of say, okay, medicine changes. Things change from, you know, the way we were cared for maybe, you know, in our childhood and then from now. So I think don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to follow up afterwards too if something wasn't clear or if you you have additional questions. I always tell parents, you know, questions sometimes come up at 2 or 3 a.m. If it's not urgent, you can write it down and, you know, send me a message or call in the next day. If it is urgent, you know, there, there are 24-hour nurse lines that you can you can call to get accurate information. But but definitely just be comfortable asking questions. And I know that's a hard thing to some people. It's easier, I think, for some than others. But, but asking questions and making sure you have good vetted information when you look it up online. So from reliable sources. 
Well, thank you for sharing those resources with us. As we're closing up here, so much of your work and your approach to medicine comes from this place of advocacy. The word can sometimes feel really big. I think we've talked about this before and maybe inaccessible to patients or even other providers. And you and you talked about, you know, working with other colleagues and sort of that being a, a really important next step. There are those who may feel like they don't have the resources or the knowledge to effectively advocate. What would you say to those patients, those providers that feel this way? How can we all feel empowered to be advocates? You know, the thing is, I think stories are very powerful. I think, you know, whatever your experience has been, whether you're Serena Williams or you are a person who lives, you know, a couple blocks away from the clinic, I think your stories are powerful because as much as I can throw data at people, it's not going to put a face on things. When I share my story as, you know, a few years ago, there were threats to Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. You know, as pediatricians, we kind of live that every day and know how that can affect people. The larger population may not even think of it like, oh, that's some government issue. But when I put a face on it, when I say, I as a child did not have insurance, this means I have to be careful about this. I couldn't do this. If I got a cold, even if I was sick for like two straight months, it was a decision where we had to say, are we going to pay like a hundred plus dollars out of pocket to see a doctor and maybe be told, oh no, you're fine or to need medication. So I think anyone can be an advocate. I think your personal experience, the experiences from your community can be very powerful. And I do want to put in a plug again, even though people sort of think we're past the COVID pandemic, we really are not. And it just depends on the evolution of the virus as to whether or not we find ourselves in, in a bad position again. But I want to put in a plug for my colleague, Dr. Rhea Boyd, who connected with a well-known influencer within the Black community, W. Kamau Bell, about the conversation. And, and this was like shortly after the COVID vaccines had come out. And there was understandably a lot of hesitance about this, you know, quote unquote, new vaccine. What's it going to do to us? Has it been tested? You know, we don't want to be test subjects. You know, a number of people were saying. And so this was an effort that largely centered Black and Latino care providers and communities to get the information out and to encourage them to share accurate information from vetted sources, from Black physicians, from Latino physicians, including a number of pediatricians who, who I'm very grateful to call both colleagues and friends. And so I think there's still a lot of good information out there. And the reason I keep hitting the COVID pandemic is there was a point last fall and last winter when the emergency had been declared over and pediatricians literally had the worst six months of our entire careers where we ran out of beds in the hospital. Kids were being put in the emergency department, you know, long-term. And I was literally telling patients, if your child gets sick, there might not be room at the inn. It's very important that you get the vaccine to prevent these more serious outcomes. And for the first time in maybe years, some of my patients agreed to get the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine. And I don't like to scare people like that on a regular basis, but, but sometimes that's the truth that is not necessarily accessible to people outside. Thank you so much for sharing that. We learned so much from you today, and it was incredibly powerful to hear your personal story and journey to becoming a pediatrician. I love your approach to advocacy, which is really steeped in story. It's something that we all have in common. We all have a story. And so if we all have a story, then that's something that we can share and continue to amplify for each other. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Minudin. We appreciate you. No, thank you so much, Nicole. I appreciate your time. And as always, it's wonderful to talk with you. That's all for today's episode of the Rise for Equity podcast by Mayo Clinic. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. We'll see you then.